Hello, I'm Tom Edwards. Welcome to a special episode of The Big Interview. Over the past seven seasons, we've spoken to some of the greatest minds in business, the arts, politics, design and more. This week, ahead of the imminent publication of a brand new Monocle print publication dedicated to drinking and dining, we look back through the programme archive at some of the stellar names we've spoken to in the restaurant business today, from chefs and guests who prefer to be called cooks to restaurateurs. We'll have an opinion about what makes the perfect dining experience, but the voices you'll hear today know more than most about creating just the right balance, lively but relaxed atmosphere, food that's delicious, compelling, but not too fancy. So let's hear from the chefs today on The Big Interview. Before we get to the food, however, let's kick things off with a look at the space within which we'll be dining. The environment is, according to our first guest, a crucial aspect of the perfect culinary experience. Jeremy King is the restaurateur behind beloved London establishments like the Wolseley and the Delaunay. He sat down with Robert Bound to discuss the key elements to consider when creating the perfect space for food. The restaurants, the hotel should work even if you never looked at a picture carefully or understood the history or any of those elements. And it comes down to design generally is that I have a very, very strong ethos, and Chris and I have felt this over the years, that design should never shout for attention, but should withstand scrutiny. And I think that, for me, is a fundamental part of creating environments for people. Well, it's fascinating stuff because I think people would be interested to know that some of the central tenets of what drives the business and how those restaurants look, but more importantly, how they feel. Mm. And I think your restaurants, people take it as read that the cooking is good, but you create rooms rather than yes. avant-garde menus. Is that a fair comment? Is that what you sort of set out to do, to create these wonderful spaces to be in? I think that's absolutely right. I mean, I mentioned the word earlier, catalyst. Well, for both Chris and I, we wanted to create restaurants that we would like to go to. It seems in some ways bleeding obvious, but if you start with that and then go on to say, and then I'm going to treat people the way I would like to be treated, if the restaurateur takes that as the basic tenet, that works. No diner has been thrown out for ordering salt in one of your restaurants. No, no, no. Oh, no, no, we're not precious at all. (laughs) I can't bear walking into the sort of restaurant which is a temple and all you can hear is the clink 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 of cutlery on crockery and people whispering how's yours is yeah it, can i would you like to try my no it's a catalyst like, I mean, a, a, a night full of unsuccessful valentine dinners oh right? uh, i mean they, they are they are the worst that's a whole other story but yeah. the if we were to do a survey around this building why people last went out for dinner to a proper restaurant people would have gone with their partner with their family, with their friends, a reunion, business, interview, seduction, divorce. I mean, people do all the difficult stuff in public spaces. And the great restaurants allow all those things to happen. Nothing should dominate too much. The music shouldn't be loud. The food shouldn't be too good. I hushed reverence or anything like that. Uh, the, if anything, I mean, I actually show me a restaurant with a fantastic view. I'll show you a boring restaurant because yeah. a third of the people are looking out the window and the other two thirds are rather hacked off that they didn't get the window table and the atmosphere is not there. And I would like a restaurant where you walk through the door and you feel you're almost scooped up by the atmosphere or the maitre d'hotel 
And as you go to the table, you see people, you're looking in one direction as a friend or there's a celebrity, there's somebody who shouldn't be with somebody, and you arrive at a table and everybody's not looking at their phone or taking photographs of each other. There's this sense that you get lifted by the experience. And halfway through of a meal which you hope is going to go on forever as opposed to being some sort of obligation, somebody stops looks down at the food and said, you know what, this really is rather good. <laughs> yes, that's right. That's what it, I happens, want. it happens by accident. Yeah. That was Jeremy King in conversation with Robert Bound. From the design of our space, let's hear next about sourcing the perfect ingredients for our meal. Ruth Rogers, chef and head of London's Michelin-starred Italian The River Cafe, sat down with Monocle's editor-in-chief Tyler Brule. Ruth talked about her passion for local markets, the potential effects of Brexit on her business, and sourcing great ingredients from the best suppliers. We've worked with suppliers over the last 30 years. We have some suppliers that we've still worked with that we, when Rose and I opened the first day. And it's a really close relationship. One of the butchers once said to somebody else, one of the most terrifying calls was ever from Rose or myself saying, you know, that wasn't up to it, you know, we're sending it back. I mean, mm-hmm. How dare you? But that's the that's the negative. We also call them up and we get a fantastic box of mushrooms or we have langoustine that come from Aberdeen. Most of our ingredients, we source our fish and our meat locally. So it comes from the waters around Devon, Cornwall. We have nothing is flown in. I, I think probably nothing comes by plane except our wine and our mozzarella from Naples, which comes in twice a week. Everything else comes from the Milan market. We have to depend on the Milan market. We can't just depend on the British vegetable season, or we'd be quite limited. And I'm fascinated by that. So that is, is someone there picking for you, or there are there suppliers who just know that they will send you some? Okay. Yeah, we go to Milan. I go to Milan two or three times a year, go to the market, talk to the person who chooses. But we use Natura, La Credenza. We have people who are we can trust. And they know. So the boxes come in. They call up and they say, we have, you know, yellow peppers are just coming in or the small peas or the... Well, we can actually buy English peas as well, you know, which is very exciting and wonderful but we have ingredients that come in from the market they're brought in and then we we have somebody who checks every box every morning and the head chef is there and they will come with to say do you want to take these broad beans look they're big and they are more flowery and we'll say yeah because we can use them something else that we could make a soup out of them or no send them back Mm. and then we take broad beans off the menu people come to the river cafe and say Sometimes in January, I'd say, I want it. This is an Italian restaurant. Where's my tomato salad? And we go, sorry. Or people say, I ate here last week and I had, uh, you know, we've had real problems getting squid at the moment. We change the menu twice a day. Sure. You know, so right now I'm working tonight and I'll go in at three and I know what's on. I know that I will have three fish in Mimi and I know one of them. Three last three months we couldn't fish sea bass because the good old EU, you know, the European Union said it's not sustainable and there was a ban on sea bass. So, which I liked. Bring them on. Bring on those rules. You sure. know, I'm all for them. 
So it's changing all the time. So is is there a truck once every two weeks or once a week that comes from Milan? Or oh no, much more often. I think it comes two or three times a week. Yeah. And you know, is that incredible that here we're talking about a world famous market that exists in Milan, and also all the great things an open market brings you as well? And exactly. to, to imagine that exactly. suddenly that those trucks can't come two or three times a week, or they will they will still come, but there will be potentially tariffs on them. And I think mm. this moment of you know mm. this lack of leadership, but also this moment of indecision that we sit in is is quite remarkable. No, I've had a really, I mean, for us, Europe has been crucial, Mm. you know, and with our ingredients, with our links to Italy. And as I said, I don't want to make this into a case for the EU. The rules they have on health and hygiene are Mm. great. You know, I've really, people say, oh, it's a bureaucracy and they do all these terrible things. For me, in my business, it's been really positive. Mm. Ruth Rogers there in conversation with Tyler Brule. From the River Cafe's Italian dishes, we head seamlessly to another famous restaurant serving up Italian delicacies, Osteria Franciscana. I spoke to the three Michelin-starred chef, art enthusiast and social entrepreneur Massimo Batura, also named the best chef in the world more than once. From him we learned, once you have the best ingredients, how to experience food as art, as an opera almost. He started by explaining how he manages to reconcile Italian culinary tradition with delivering innovation. Once I was talking with René and I said, uh, I think it was more challenging for me to try to innovate Italian cuisine than for you to create a Nordic cuisine, you know, because, you know, they don't, they didn't have, they didn't have, (laughs) no, we were discussing about that because they didn't have anything, you know, you know, the people, they were like, why do we have to spend time around the table? They didn't get it, no, before. But for me, to just to break old tradition, like Ai Weiwei, you know, when he breaks the vase and, uh, you know, 2,000 years old vase and says, I'm not defeating my past. I'm breaking my past to build a new tradition filtered by a contemporary mind is exactly what I do. I look at the past in a critic way, not in a nostalgic way, always. Mm. And I get the best from the past into the future. If I have a big pan of lasagna, as a kid, I know that the best part of the lasagna is the crunchy part. The rest is for adults to eat and get fat. But the crunchy part is just emotion, pure emotions. If you have, uh, oops, I dropped the lemon tart, is is a way to play with the imperfection. But the, the flavors are capers, bergamot, lemon, almond from, from Noto, the Pantelleria, and Calabria, you know, the, the range of flavor of south of Italy, the most amazing product you can have. You know, you can squeeze the lemon in your palate and you feel it's, it's sweet. You don't need sugar on the, uh, when, you, when you prepare it zabayone with that. So that's the point, is like, is to represent the metaphor for south of Italy as a broken place, but when you walk in a temple valley or you swim in Capri, you just, you know, are in the best place in the world. So forget about, you know, everything else, you know. And is exactly what we do in Osteria. We try to to serve emotion. People they don't get crazy to get a reservation in Osteria Francescana, you know, to eat food, good food. You know, you can eat in a in a, any trattoria anywhere. You come there to experience 
from the moment you make a reservation. So how they answer to you, how they help you to find the right way, especially for people they want to spend the weekend there, to find the right place for Parmigiano Reggiano, to taste the best balsamic vinegar directly from, uh, from the barrels, you know, live this kind of experience that are unique. And, and then after, at the end of this weekend, you have the experience at Osteria. So since this, you know, it's, it's very important to live this kind of, a, of experience as an opera because the, the tasting menu at the end is built like an opera, no? You have an overture, the things that they are telling you what to expect. You taste it, you realize, you, you start analyzing that. And then you have uh, the adagio really slow, and then the allegro, and then the minuetto, and then the grand finale. So you have, uh, and the grand finale, you have everything. And then, thank you. At the end, you know, the way you say thank you to people and uh, have uh, welcome and thank you is like, there are two incredible words and in the middle of the whole opera. So you come to Osteria to live this kind of experience and, uh, you know, the people are when we rebuilt the restaurant in 2012, I left the room like that. We tripled the space for, for ourselves, kitchen and prep and bakery and cellar. And, but we left 12 table because I had the opportunity to go out and talk with, with all my, my guests that come from all over the world. This kind of experience is very, very important because Osteria is not about business. We are 50 people for 28 covers. So... It's not about that. It's about emotion. We compress into edible bites our passion. Music, Monk, Parker, Billy Holiday. That was Massimo Batura. More from him later. Now, chefs are not a homogenous species. Our next guest, the cook and restaurateur Bill Granger, takes a quite different approach. Far from Batura's experience countering Italian diners' nostalgia and sometimes conservatism about food, Granger explains how the culinary culture in his native Australia has long been shaped by global influences. And where Batura was the maestro conducting a concerto, Granger explains why he considers himself more a cook than a chef. And I think, you know, chefy chefs are, you know, are breaking the rules and it's a very much a personal art form. And it's, you know, it's really unchecked creativity, I think, which is fantastic. So, you know, people, you know, at the top restaurants, the top people, you know, whether it's, a, you know, Noma or what Heston does, or it's really about a creative expression and people catch up to it. And it's not necessarily giving them what they know they want. It's giving them something they've never even seen before. Whereas what I do is quite different. I think, you know, when you talk about that, that is probably the difference of a... Yeah, a cook and a um, and a chef. A cook really cooks to make people happy, knowing what they like and anticipating what they like and giving it to them. Whereas I think a, a finer chef really does something to pushes them and to surprise people. Now we mentioned briefly this, this idea that your path into cooking was maybe slightly alternative. It wasn't you know mm. training under another chef, this sort of thing. Did your other learning? Did it help with your culinary learning in a sense? You, you studied architecture, I think, briefly. You went yeah. to art school, of course. What was happening in your head? Do you, do you find that you've sort of integrated some of those disciplines into, into food in a way? Yeah, I mean, I think all the creative areas are quite related. And I think, you know, the creative, if you enjoy the creative world, and that can be creating yourself, it can be working with creative people and helping produce what those creative people do. I think if you enjoy that, and there's a certain, with creative work, there's a, definitely a less direct path. You know, think you've got to be a, lot, a bit more organic, a bit more flexible. 
and a little bit less, um, yeah, focused on a result. You've got to allow that creative process to happen. So I think my background, I, you know, with school, I wasn't bad at school, but I was never wildly academic where I felt it was obvious to go into an academic, you know, career. So for a while I thought architecture was going to be it and I really worked hard because I loved, you know, interiors and buildings. I thought that was a good place for me. You know, although my parents were reminding me when I was younger, I wanted to do hotel management. So I think the food thing was always there, that idea of hospitality. And then I changed to art school because I found that a little bit structured and a little bit definite. And I think at 19, it's really hard to know what you want to do. Mm. I mean, I don't think anyone does. And so art school gave me the time just to be, really, Mm. and to not have a direct thing I had to do apart from, you know, creating different artworks or learning different techniques, which had nothing to do with what I wanted to do in the end. But it just gave me time to think. And I think the great thing about art school is it teaches you and gives you time to think, which I think the education system doesn't necessarily always do. We've got to talk about the UK. You're in mm. London now. You, you live in London. Yeah, I live in, your, yeah family, London. your family are here. Are your, your kids, for example, are they, are they little Londoners? And no, if they, if they, they are, how do, you, how do you feel about that? <laughs> they're global. I think the world now, there's a whole lot of us that are working globally. And I think, you know, a lot of it's to do with technology, that it's easy to, you know, with Skype, you see people where, you know, conference calls used to be really hard with video. Now it's an everyday thing. Emails come through. So it's a very normal thing working around the world for us now. And I think it's, you become better at it. I think you become better at understanding and appreciating the differences of every, every country at first. I think as time goes on, relationships internationally become easier as you get to know each other on a deeper level. But at mm. first, there's so much we take for granted. And whether it's the UK and Australia, the way British people and Australian people communicate in business is completely different. So, you know, it's a matter of learning all of that. What about how your food travels then? Because mm. obviously you, you found it easy to travel, to relocate as yeah. needs be. Whether we go back again to sort of bills and the bills model, and that mm. was something that seemed to export well. Why was that? Is there a simplicity of purpose almost behind it? Is there a purity of idea that means that that works? What, what is it? About? How, how do you explain this? How do I explain that it works? Yeah, because I mean, it does. We work, the food works in, you know, Japan and Korea and Hawaii and um, the UK and Australia. And I think. I don't know. Someone said to me, one of my um, people who work with me in Japan, that he thinks it's interesting being Australian, that it appeals to palates in Asia and I think also in the UK because my background, you know, my background is, you know, Anglo-Australian. So my family, I grew up on English food, roast dinners and, you know, good, very... Good hearty food. Hearty food, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Really good in 40 degrees Cold Australian weather, sun. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but, you know, yeah, scones, you know, really basic British food. Then... The whole, in the 70s and 80s in Australia, was an explosion of Italian influences, Greek influences, Chinese, Thai influences. And that's a very, hit me really young in my teenage years. And I think in Australia, because we didn't have a an Indigenous food culture, so to speak, we've taken in lots to create our own. That appeals to a lot of different palates. And I think that's probably why. So my, my palate is quite global in a very natural way. I don't feel... Japanese food or Greek food is foreign. I feel like it's food that's all totally appropriate in Australia. And because I do comfort food, I'm as comfortable with pancakes or scrambled eggs for breakfast as I am with fried rice for breakfast. So it's, it's, your, it's interesting you use that phrase, comfort food, Danny. Do you think that the genre is more important than the than the place? Well, you wouldn't say that you do you know, Australian food, then. It's, what is it, global, it's global cuisine? I think it is global. I mean, you try and describe Australian food. I think Australian Food definitely has a freshness and a liveliness on the palate, more so than anywhere. You know, maybe the close thing would be California, Southern Californian um, food, whether it be, um, you know, San Francisco or LA-based, that kind of thing. 
but it does have a freshness. And we also have a lack of rules because we're not, it's all right to do different things. We're not, we don't have a tradition like Italy where you've got to be really careful about what you're doing. Customers will eat anything. Hmm. Tell me a bit more then. I mean, you've mentioned a few places. It's in the sort of global, this global perspective that you have. Where do you find your, your food inspiration then? And you mentioned, you know, you don't want to mess with classics. And yeah. people, people have, they know bills for particular breakfast yeah. staples that they love. And there's probably be an absolute uproar yeah. if you change anything. <laughs> but presumably you do need to freshen up your, hmm. your mental palate, if you like. What, did you just find things wherever you go? Or are there places where you think, oh, I'm really looking forward to my trip to the West Coast US yes. or wherever oh, it might be? Look, you know, where I get inspired with foods mixed up a bit. Like I love the food in Hawaii because you've got a total fusion of, you know, Japanese with, um, you know, junky American all coming together. I love the food in Singapore because you get this great, you know, the great mix of Indian and Chinese and, um, you know, Nonya all, you know, together and, you know, in a very natural mix. So I, you know, in LA, I love the mix with Mexican, you know, mm. coming through. So those kind of places I get really excited by because the food always feels very alive and very changing and growing which I think is really good. So travel is always, for me, where I get food inspiration, always. Rather than specific, say, going and travelling around, you know, the southwest of France looking for a specific style, I like more modern cities where things are getting, yeah, thrown around a bit, with a great restaurant scene. Bill Granger there. Let's return to our expert restaurateur, Jeremy King. Next, he tells us about his vision for the people who occupy the tables in his restaurants and how he creates and keeps a family of regulars happy. Here's Jeremy again. Chris and I have always believed that restaurants should be egalitarian. And a lot of the most interesting people who come into restaurants are the least affluent. And therefore, you mustn't exclude them. So our motivation is if we, those people can come through the door, we must give enough people the opportunity to spend but not make it mandatory so that there's a complete cross-section of society. I remember Peter Langan always said that what he aspired to in the brasserie was a place where the taxi driver and the duchess could sit down in, in, at adjoining tables. And I, that, for me, is, uh, it remains, a, remains a dream. And so, the taxi driver and the duchess sounds like a, one, of, one, one of the lesser-known parables, doesn't it? Or a dirty joke. Well, I was going to say, or a porn film or something. But the, <laughs> um, and, and that felt very strongly. So as Adele, you have real gold leaf guilt. I mean, it was, it was extraordinary refurbishment. Uh, under the Crown Estate. But it was important, even though it was very, very cheap, for want of a better word, doesn't mean to say it has to have paper napkins or or anything like that. So we put proper linen on the table, proper principles, and working on on that basis. Took a long time for people to get used to it, and then took a good two years. Had to withstand quite a lot of pressure to, uh, to give up on it. But actually, it's then come storming through. And to go down on a Friday, Friday, well, any evening of the week and say at 9.30 when the cabaret's emptying out, mm. the American bar's full and the music's just struck up in a brasserie with that big, it's exciting. Well, uh, then you've become the creator you feared you couldn't be when you were 18 years old. Yeah. Right. Well, that, I think that's well, it, it's interesting you pick up on that. I mean, the beauty of it is as time goes on, I realize this part of me, which is a little bit architect, a little bit creator, a little bit writer, a little bit, I don't know, uh, many things monkey, but a little bit of a ringmaster, maybe. Well, in, in some ways. And then I become a catalyst. So it gives me a great deal of enjoyment. And just finally, people will be very interested in how you put a night together. People want to know how many tables you keep 
aside just in case Madonna turns up to the Wolseley. How does that work? Sometimes people get quite outraged by the uh, the notion that tables are kept back because they say, well, you can't claw yourself an egalitarian. But, of course, people want to go to a restaurant which is, A, buzzy and, and fun, and, B, has an interesting group of people. It is fair to say if you... If you have 25 tables, if you take the first 25 bookings, they're probably going to be disappointed. And I know it's the oldest, oldest restaurant joke is the customer who says, have you got a table for two? No, I'm afraid not. I bet if Prince of Wales was to walk in, you'd find him a table of two. Uh, well, maybe we would, sir, but, well, he's not coming. I can tell you that with good authority, so can I have his table? It's the old, and people don't don't understand, but it's not just celebrity we keep tables back for it's people who are regular customers because there's nothing worse than building up a relationship with a restaurant and actually being part of its success and then subsequently not being able to get in but there's a lot more to it in restaurants and um, I remember when Adrian Gill A.A. Gill wrote about the Ivy he very perceptively understood that what we were trying to do in his words was not allow any tribe to dominate the great restaurants are when you have theatre people sitting next to advertising, to publishing, to film people, to any number. Nobody should dominate because it then becomes uncomfortable. So for us, it is, people talk about it, curating a room. It's understanding who the customers are. But again, it's the whole point of the business. And as I say to the staff, if it's only about sitting people down, taking orders, serving, cooking, etc. It's a really boring business. But if you understand how that food's reared or grown and the wine and all the fascinating things about it and then mixing it with people and who they are and why they can't sit next to each other and so on, it's one of the most fascinating because it is at the root of our culture. If you think about it, virtually every major movement, culturally or revolutionary, has started in a grand cafe, whether it's in Paris or Moscow or wherever it might be. So the art of the restaurateur is perhaps, I'm being slightly evasive in actually how we do it, but (laughs) I'd never ever pretend that we don't hold back a very large proportion of our tables for the people who've made us successful. Jeremy King talking to Robert Bound. In the words of King, brasseries shouldn't be a place for the affluent only. But should chefs take on even more responsibility in tackling broader social changes, such as hunger or excessive food waste? Massimo Batura, we know, is a man of many passions and ideas. As ever, on this question he jumped in wholeheartedly. Batura has devoted himself in recent years to feeding the hungry through his foundation Food for Soul. Here, Massimo tells me more about taking on the responsibility. Chefs... uh... I think are much more than the sum of their recipes. People are listening. Mm -hmm. Culture, knowledge, consciousness, sense of responsibility. A chef with culture, and that's why I say it's the most important uh, ingredient for a chef of the future, studying, reading, getting deep into things, you know, transform the interest into passion. You can transfer emotion through passion. And, uh, you know, knowledge, develop, you know, create a team that is uh, following you. Once you have this, you know, it opens the consciousness that is very, very important, especially an Italian chef like me that uh, grew up in a very social uh, area, region, uh, as Emilia-Romagna. We have this in our DNA. And uh, the sense of responsibility, of course, when you receive everything from life, 
what do you have to do? Give back. Mm. And this is uh, the moment in which uh, you give back. And I gave back like this, you know, try to involve uh, everyone uh, all together. We share this idea all together. This is a big change. Eh? And, uh, and we want to give back. And uh, we, we, we want fight waste because numbers are numbers. 860 million people, they don't have anything to eat. 1.5 are overweight and 1.3 billion tons of food are wasted every year. 33% of the production. So this project is, is a cultural project to fight the waste. And more than that, we transfer our knowledge to the volunteers. So they're mm -hmm. the ring. And, and we give the example, we set the example for the new generation, the new chef they see, and they look at us as an example. So this is what, the, what a chef in 2017 is, is, uh, is an agent of change. And these kind of projects are very inclusive projects. You know, we are breaking the walls in the moment people are building walls and say, please, welcome. You are welcome. Come inside, have fun, have joy. Let's celebrate together. That was the ever-passionate Massimo Batura. You've been listening to a special episode of The Big Interview with me, Tom Edwards. If the tales told today have tickled your taste buds and piqued your interest, then be sure to keep a hungry eye on newsstands. The first Monocle Drinking and Dining directory is out this month. You can find out more about that at monocle.com. The Big Interview is produced by Yolin Goffan and edited by Cassie Galpin. Until next time, thanks for listening. <laughs>